All right, we are wrapping up our series on the five solas. So by way of review, what is a sola? Sola is the Latin word for alone. And these five solas have been used to summarize the teaching of the Reformation. Not that the reformer said, here are the five solas. But looking back in history, that word sola alone comes up so much in the theology of the reformers. So we've been through four. The first sola being sola scriptura, only the Bible, God's word alone. That is our only source of authority. And so the Reformation was a reclamation of that truth that the earthly powers of the church do not supersede the authority of the word of God. We looked at sola fide, by faith alone, particularly as we turn that on to God's work of justification, where through faith Christ's righteousness is ours, our condemnation is his, we are united with him, and we stand before God acquitted of our sins, declared righteous not made righteous so that we cooperate in our salvation, but declared completely and totally righteousness in the work of another. We talked about sola gratia, that our salvation, our justification is solely a work of God's grace. We do nothing to merit salvation. Nothing we do earns God's favor in any way that Christ has not already done. Last week we talked about solus Christus, only Christ. Our only hope for salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And today we reach the end of the solas, soli deo gloria. Only to God be the glory. That phrase was often written even shortly after the Reformation. There was a famous composer, you've probably heard of him, Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach was actually educated at the same university that Martin Luther was. And at the bottom of every work that he composed, and understand, that's a lot of works. This is a guy who composed an oratorio every week for church. All right? So he composed new music for the church to sing together and for the choir to sing on Sunday. He would compose it every week. A modern composer might compose six oratorios in his life and be considered prolific. Bach did it every week. And at the bottom of each of them, he wrote three letters, S-D-G, soli deo gloria, only to God's glory. Don't sing these songs and think of Bach. Sing these songs and think of God. He is the one who deserves the glory. So today, soli deo gloria. Let's start by defining it. All that God does is performed in such a way that he receives all the praise and all the credit for our salvation. All that God does is done in such a way that he receives all the glory and all the praise. Really, when we use the word glory, we could use several synonyms to help clarify it. It is praise. It is worth. It is worship. It is exaltation. It is credit. Everything that God does is done in such a way that no man can rightly say, I did that. Everything is a gift of God's glorious grace. Everything that happens on the earth points us to the glory of God. Let's look at some quotes of the Reformers. We're not going to look, as we have been doing, where we kind of put two sides of the issue against each other. 
The soli deo gloria was not that kind of issue in the Reformation. It's more like the underpinning of the other solas and the result. It's saying that salvation relies nothing on me, therefore God deserves all the glory. Right? So it's not so much a debate as it is a consequence of the Reformation. So let's look at just a few quotes this morning. Martin Luther says, God has surely promised his grace to the humble, that is, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another God alone. So Luther says the Bible encourages us to be humble, but you cannot be humble if you think you have anything which allows you to stand before God. The only true humility is the humility that says all glory goes to God alone. Calvin says this, Now the faithful to whom he has given eyes see sparks of his glory as it were glittering in every created thing. The world was no doubt made that it might be the theater of the divine glory. Love that quote. We see sparks of God's glory. We see a little bit here and there. But the whole world is created to be a theater of God's glory. Love going to national parks. I love going to beautiful places. But how sad is it if we can go to Glacier National Park or Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon and see the glorious beauty of creation, and we can do that without turning our hearts to the one who made it. Yet it's so easy to just marvel at it. Or how about when we look at our children? They are gifts of God's glorious grace. They are knit together by him. And so everything ought to cause us to glorify God. The creation is the theater of the divine glory. Calvin also says this, observe that the righteousness of God is not sufficiently displayed unless he alone is held to be righteous and freely communicates righteousness to the undeserving. God's righteousness cannot be adequately described unless we recognize that it is an exclusive righteousness, that no one else has that same righteousness, that no one else could have that same righteousness. And finally, last week we had the first words of the Heidelberg Catechism from the continent. Today we'll look at the first words of the Westminster Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what we were created for, to glorify and enjoy God. And by enjoy, we're focusing our attention on God's goodness so that when we see God as he is, we cannot help but delight in him because he is the source and the definition of goodness. Not only does God do good things, he is the measuring stick by which we determine what a good thing is. God is infinitely glorious. Like I said, the discussion was not so much about whether God was glorious in the Reformation, but the implication of salvation by my own merit or salvation wholly, completely, entirely by the work of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, that is going to make a distinction in how we can ascribe glory to God. Because if I am saved by partaking of a sacrament, if I am saved by an action I take, then some of the glory of my salvation belongs to me. 
Maybe it's a small part. God does 99% of the work and I do 1%. I'm still robbing God of 1%. I'm robbing God of the glory he is due. And that's why we say that Jesus plus something is nothing. And Jesus plus nothing is everything. We are completely reliant upon God, not just for our salvation, but for our mere existence on this planet. And so he is worthy of all glory, worthy of all praise, worthy of being ascribed the greatest worth, worthy of worship, worthy of exaltation, worthy of all the credit. So let's defend this doctrine of the glory of God. As I said, it's a very different sola than the others. It's more of an implication, but in fact, it truly is scattered all throughout the Bible. In fact, our text this morning is the Bible. We're going to have to spend some time in Genesis. We're going to spend some time in Revelation, and we're going to make a lot of stops in between. We're going to move quickly through the storyline of Scripture. But before we get there, I want us to think about the mechanism of the glory of God. Most of the time when we talk about the glory of God, we're using it in the sense that Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about our actions in this life. So I am called to glorify God. To him be the glory. And so the things that I do, the way that I live, is done in such a way that I am directing glory to God. And that is absolutely biblical, and it is a proper implication of the doctrine, but it's only half, and if it's possible, maybe not mathematically, at least in our thoughts, it's the smaller half, all right? It's less than half. It's a smaller part. The true nature of the glory of God, if we're going to talk about the glory of God, we cannot start with me doing something. That's all about me. We must start with God's actions towards me. So don't allow ourselves to miss the glory of God by talking about the glory we give to God. Because if I never glorify God, if I take Romans chapter 12, verse 1, says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. If I ignore that and say, I'm not giving my life as a sacrifice, I'm not giving God glory, God will not get any less glory than if I don't. I am a participant in the glorification of God, but I am an unwilling participant. I will glorify God one way or another. So don't get such a small view of God's glory that we think it's about the way that we live only. So we're going to look at the course of the Bible. How is God's glory displayed in the Bible? God is ultimate. God is unparalleled. God is the standard of goodness. Anyone who rebels against God cannot do good. You see, as rebels against God, we cannot do good because God is good. Not that God does good things. God is the definition of good. If God doesn't do something, it is not good. If God does do something, it is good. He sets the standard, not us. And so if we try and do good apart from what God has commanded, it's not good because God is the standard of good. 
He does not need creation, but he chose to make creation for his own glory. When his creation rebels, if it's going to be restored, it must be restored by him. The problem with creation is inside of creation. It is not with God. It is with the creation. And so God must be the one to restore that which is broken, that which is corrupted. Soli Deo Gloria is about God, not me. So we start by looking at the fact that soli deo glory, the glory of God, is initiated by God's action. That's our starting point. You're welcome to turn in your Bible, but we are going to be flying. All right? So I'm going to have all the Bible verses up front. You're welcome to turn, but they are also up front, so don't panic. I'm not going to pause so that we can all turn every time because I think we've got like 25 verses to go through. Right, we're going to walk through the story of the Bible. There's a book, some of us here have read it, called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And it's a book, it's a good read, not terribly difficult, it's not lightweight, but it's about how the theme of the Bible is that God glorifies himself in salvation through judgment. And that theme can be found in every book. There's other themes that can be found in every book of the Bible. But one of the dominant themes of the Bible is the fact that God brings glory to himself by both saving and by judging. And we're going to look through the Bible this morning and see how God takes action in glorifying himself. Now, because we don't want to be here all week, we're not actually going to read the entire Bible this morning. We're going to take some high points. You could go to literally any part of the Bible and you could find how God is demonstrating his glory. Well, we're going to look at some of the high points. Let's start with the most obvious one, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice the Bible does not start by defending the existence of God. It doesn't start by proving the existence of God. The Bible starts with the assumption of the existence of God. In the beginning, God, he's there. He doesn't become, he's there. The beginning comes after God, all right? Think about that, what that means. The beginning is after God. In the beginning was God, he pre-exists the beginning, and he created the heavens and the earth. So all that we see is God's creation. It comes from God. He is the source, and certainly, if God is the source of everything, then nothing is greater than God. If everything comes from him, it is by definition less than him, because he is the starting cause. Think of it as children. Why is this different? I can't take all the credit for everything my children do, right? I probably should take a lot of the blame, but I can't take all the credit. Why is that different than how we deal with God relating to creation? Because my children have inputs from a bunch of different sources. Okay? I contribute to my children's growth, but so does my wife. So do their grandparents. So do you all. So does the church in general. So do their teachers. There's a bunch of people pouring in. I don't deserve all the credit. But in creation, you have God, creation, and there's nothing else outside of creation besides God that's bearing that influence. He is solely and completely responsible, and therefore everything that happens within creation is his. He gets the glory for it. 
How can I take glory for a sermon I preach when God is the one who gave me the Bible that it is preached from? God is the one who gave me the mind that composed the sermon. God is the one who gave me the lungs that breathe as I preach. God is the one who gave me the vocal cords. That's one example. I deserve no glory because none of it is mine. It is all given to me. The same is true of everything we do in our life. Continuing on. How does God respond to his creation? Verse 31 through chapter 2, verse 3. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There is evening, there is morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God, in completing creation, rests. It's complete. He's finished his work. All the glory belongs to him. But we all know this doesn't last long. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The fall is also about the glory of God in that it deals with the corruption of his glory. Look what happens in the fall. Verse number 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any fruit tree of the garden? So the first thing that Satan does, if he's going to get the world to rebel against God, he must undermine the authority of God. And so Satan comes in. Also bear in mind, why is Satan even existing? Because he's already chosen to try and make himself like God. He has rejected God's authority. Now he comes to Eve. Did God really say that? Well, it goes on. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So first he says, maybe God didn't say what you think he said. And then he goes on and says, what God did say is completely and totally false. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Irony here, Satan is cast out of heaven because of the fact that he tried to do exactly what he got Eve to try to do. He's trying to take from God's glory, but God is worthy of all glory. And so in the fall, God's glory is demonstrated because his enemies try to rob it. The Exodus, we are going to not do every book, I promise. The Exodus God works through the Exodus to reveal himself to both Israel and Egypt as the true God worthy of glory. Now we're going to look at a smattering of verses from Exodus. This is probably about a third of the verses that say this exact same thing. But Pharaoh said, chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. All right, so this starts the process of the Exodus here as far as the relationship between Israel and Pharaoh. Moses tells him, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, wisely, <laughs> right? This goes really well for him. God? Who's God? I've never heard of him. Why would I care what he says? All right, so that's the start. You have someone claiming ignorance of who God is. Romans 1 tells us no one has ignorance of who God is because in creation he has already demonstrated himself and we're just rejecting him. Pharaoh knows enough to know who God is, but he doesn't like it. He rejects him, so he tells Moses, I don't know who God is. So we continue on. This theme starts being developed. Chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God, talking to the Israelites now, says, I'm going to deliver you from the Egyptians. Why? So that you will know that I am God. 
He is manifesting his glory to them. He's saying, this is who I am, and I'm going to show you who I am. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Direct answer to Pharaoh here, all right? Pharaoh says, who's God? I don't know who God is. God says, I'll tell you. And we have the plagues. God demonstrating his glory. Chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He's talking to Pharaoh. He says, God already could have judged him. God already could have completed this, but he's taking his sweet time going through all ten plagues. So why couldn't it just be one plague, right? Because he's making a point. He is exalting Pharaoh so that he can tear him down. He's making Pharaoh look like a big deal show that God truly is. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God and the Exodus is working not just to save Israel because he allowed them to be captive in the first part. He could have just skipped the whole process if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He wants to manifest his glory. Chapter 14, verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. All right, so talking about crossing the Red Sea, God will cause the Red Sea to come in on Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen, and God's people will be saved, and then Pharaoh will have his answer. Who's the Lord? The one who just cost you your entire military. God displaying his glory. 1612. Now we're back to Israel. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so this kind of points out the trouble with Israel. God's already done all these things to show that he's the Lord their God. All the plagues, Red Sea, all that stuff. He's told them, I'm doing this, so you know I'm the Lord your God. And then they're complaining. And God says, all right, fine, I'll give you food, and then you'll know that I'm the Lord your God. Now Israel still rejects him. But God is working in the Exodus to show his glory. And the culmination of all of this, chapter 20, the chapter we get the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, in giving the law, so now we've kind of moved on to the next three and a half books of the Bible here, from Genesis and Exodus. Now we have the law coming after this. But the basis of the law, God says, I brought you out of Egypt. I've showed you that I'm God. Now don't have another God, and here's what that's going to look like. So God in Exodus is manifesting his glory. Let's jump forward a thousand years or so. All right, told you I wouldn't do every book. We'll jump forward to Isaiah. So in Isaiah, you have rebellious Israel. What does God say? How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross or garbage. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So you have Israel, God's people, who have been given the law because they know who God is. They should be demonstrating to the world who God is. Therefore, the Lord God declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, 
I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So you have Israel and rebellion against the glorious God and rebellion against his law and God speaks to them and what he says to them is I am going to be glorified. I am going to get relief. I am going to be justified here. And how's that going to happen? He's going to judge evil, and those who repent, he's going to save. So again, sounds New Testament-y almost, right? We like to play the God of the Old Testament against the New Testament, but here we have the same thing as we have in Romans chapter 3. God is going to be just. God is also going to be justifier. He's going to judge the wicked, but he's going to save those who repent. God glorifies himself in his creation. But this is all being found in God's activity towards creation. God glorifies himself by working in his creation. We continue to the New Testament, the life of Christ. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, John 3.16, perhaps the best known passage in the Bible, but where does it start? For God so loved the world. God is the one who initiates the work of Jesus. He sends his son because of himself. He sends his son because of attitudes and emotions that are within him. He loves the world, so he sends his son to give eternal life. John 12.49, Jesus says this, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So Jesus, in talking about the role of the Father, says, God, the Father sent me. The Father has sent me. So again, God is the one who is at work in the life of Christ. God receives all the glory. He is the one who is working. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Later in the chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, Jesus himself is God. And so, what Jesus does glorifies God. He's sent by the Father, but he himself, the Son, is God. And so every action that Jesus takes, by default, it's God in the flesh doing the action. He gets the glory. Luke 22, verse 41 through 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So even Jesus in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, 
Salvation, the work of God on the cross, the work of God through Christ on the cross, is initiated by God so that he is the one who gets the glory. After Jesus' ascension, the epistles bear witness to this as well. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One last text. After this I looked, and behold, great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is the church standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the biblical case is that the work of God in the world permeates everything, so that everything that happens in the world is for the glory of God, and that includes the work of God saving us. And so you can see why this is a product of that Reformation doctrine of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Because grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone ensures that the only person who gets the glory for our salvation, it is not my priest, it is not the Pope, it is not myself. The only person who gets any glory for my salvation is the one who initiated it, the one who accomplished it, the one who died for it, the one who justifies, the one who sanctifies, the one who does all of this is God, and he gets the glory for it. Now, and only now, can we then get to the Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 5 kind of glorifying God. If I'm going to glorify God, that's going to be an outgrowth of understanding what about God is glorious. How could I possibly glorify God if I don't understand what it means that God is glorious? And what it means that God is glorious is that he's ultimate. He's the end. He's everything. He's the beginning. He's the alpha and omega. He is the source of goodness, the definition of goodness. And so, Soli Deo Gloria means that I am recognizing that there is nothing in me that has merit before God. So we conclude from this, God is glorious. He reveals his glory in creation. He reveals his glory in his justice. He reveals his glory in his salvation. He reveals his glory in the incarnation. He will reveal his glory in judgment. God is is glorious and he reveals that to us so now we can look at our response how do we respond romans 12 1 i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god paul has just spent 11 chapters expounding on the glory and mercy of god i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship so, as a response, because God has shown his glory to us, we will glorify him, but not in a way that takes any glory from him. We are simply responding to his actions in us. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So Paul kind of summarizes an argument he makes in the book of Ephesians, says, so as a response to what God has done in saving us by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, 
Now imitate him. Be like God. So even here when he's saying glorify God, how is he telling us to glorify God? Well, be like him. Well, who's that really glorify? Glorifies God, right? It's not me. I'm simply an imitation. I'm simply the copy. And the copy is pointing to the original. I cannot exceed God in glory. I can only hope to glorify him by acting like him. By acting like he does, I demonstrate his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Bit of a review, it wasn't that long ago we were in this passage. Paul's talking about meat offered to idols, how they decide whether or not to eat meat offered unto idols and that, that kind of discussion. And he gets here and he says, whatever you're doing, do it for God's glory. Whatever choice you make, have the right focus, recognizing God owns everything and he is the only factor in any decision that we make. A book that's been helpful even this week, I wasn't reading it for purposes of sermon prep, but for other things, there's a book recently reprinted, a book by John Calvin called The Little Book on the Christian Life. If you have enjoyed talking about the Reformers and you're kind of like, I'd be curious to read more primary source material, I cannot recommend this one highly enough to do that. These guys up here have read it. It's not hard to read. My wife enjoyed it. She doesn't like reading hard things to read. It's just called Little Book on the Christian Life. It has a really pretty cover. But the first chapter of that book is focused on giving us a motivation for our godliness, a motivation for how we live. And he's comparing a biblical motivation versus a philosophical motivation. He says the philosophers can tell you all about virtue, but they can't really secure any change in you because the why isn't answered. You're just virtuous for the sake of virtue. But then he goes on to say that the main focus of our virtue is grounded in what God has done for us. So that even when I am trying to live a moral, godly, virtuous life, even when I'm making ethical decisions, they're not ethical decisions for my own sake. They're not ethical decisions because, praise God, he's made me more ethical than my neighbor. Like the Pharisee saying, thank you, God, for not making me like the publican. No, even when I'm making moral judgments, I'm making them for the right reason. So he says this, Christ has engrafted us into his body. We, therefore, who are his members, must be especially careful not to fling mud or filthiness on the body of Christ. So he says, God has done something. He's engrafted us into the body of Christ. So now our responsibility is not make the body of Christ muddy says, Christ, our head, has ascended into heaven. We, therefore, must set aside earthly affections and wholeheartedly long for that place. If we are in Christ, if Christ has done everything for us, Christ has ascended into heaven, our affection should be where Christ is, not where we are. The Holy Spirit has consecrated us as temples of God. We, therefore, must let the glory of God shine through us, and we must not pollute ourselves with sin. The Holy Spirit has made us into temples, so now be like a temple. Allow that glory to shine through you. Don't corrupt it. Our bodies and souls have been destined to heavenly incorruption and an unfading crown. We, therefore, must strive upward, keeping ourselves pure and corruptible until the day of the Lord. When the glory of God is properly framed, it's not just a moral judgment we make. It is a reflection on all that God has done. 
And so don't miss that part of the glory of God, that the glory of God is a result of God working in us, God working in his creation, and we're simply responding. So yes, should we call one another to live for the glory of God? Absolutely, the Bible does it. But understand what that means. Don't reduce the glory of God to me deciding what to eat. Don't reduce the glory of God to me deciding, making a specific ethical decision. Understand that even when I live to the glory of God, the glory that I provide God is a fraction of what he warrants. It is a fraction of what he deserves. When the glorification of God is properly framed, it is a response and reflection of his glory. No credit goes to us. So let's turn to application this morning. If you are here and you are not a believer in Christ, you are trying to glorify yourself. Whatever you think your goal in life is, is about you if it's not about God. You cannot look to yourself for meaning. You cannot look to yourself for satisfaction because at best, you are a corrupted copy. You are a corrupted copy as the image of God. However, in God, we find ultimate glory, which allows us to serve as we are intended as a copy, but a copy that points to God. As an image, but an image that brings glory to God. So I ask of you, if you are here and you are not a Christian, stop looking to yourself for your hope. You are not glorious. You are corrupted. God is glorious. So turn to him in faith. Turn away from yourself. Christians, you might be motivated to live a virtuous life by any number of things might be motivated to live a virtuous life by cultural pressure, by the demands of your job, by your responsibility you feel to raise your children well. Whatever it is, there are many pressures that cause people to live virtuous lives. That's why we don't live in a horrible anarchy where everyone's murdering each other. There are lots of reasons to live virtuous and ethical lives. But a virtuous and ethical life is not the same as a God-glorifying life. If you are pursuing virtue and ethics, if you are pursuing good works, not as a reflection of God's glory, but as a pointer to your own glory, as a pointer to your own increasing sanctification, you are not glorifying God. So Christians, as you work through how do I live in this world, Look upon the work of God in creation and say, the one who made this is worth my sacrifice. I will give up whatever he asks of me. Look upon God's work and his people Israel and recognize that the God who saves and delivers Israel is a good God who is worthy of our praise and glory, who can demand everything from us because he has given us everything. Look upon the work of Christ in the church through the Reformation See, wow, God, you took some corrupt guys, some messed up guys, some terrible nations. Man, we talked about the English Reformation in Sunday school. That thing was a mess. Yet, God, in his sovereignty and his good purposes, was able to work for his glory. And when we see that, we ought to be humbled and say, God, we praise you for using broken and misguided men to accomplish great things. And we pray that you would do the same thing in our lives. Look 
upon the work of God and the salvation of your soul and respond in God-glorifying sacrifice. See, if the motive of your virtue is anything other than the unchanging God, your motive can change. That's why there's times when we can make value decisions. We make them all the time. Maybe you're struggling with anger with your spouse and you're treating your spouse poorly. When you come to church, if you disagree, you can probably manage not to yell in the middle of the song service. If you're sitting next to each other and you're kind of having one of those little fights where you can't really work it out and you're both mad at each other, it hasn't happened yet. I'd like to hope it doesn't happen in the future that like you get in this knockdown, drag out fight arguing with each other. Why? Because there are cultural pressures that enable us to resist that temptation. Right? I might be rude to my wife at home, but I'm going to do a much better job when I'm sitting here with my brothers and sisters in Christ at church of not being rude to my wife. So there is a motive for virtue. However, that motive is going to change. There are going to come times when that motive is not there. There are not people around. And if it's only for the sake of people, I'm not going to be motivated to treat my wife well. Maybe I know that there's consequences in my relationship and my relationship will be unpleasant if I am unkind to my wife. However, there might be times when for whatever reason, maybe I can get away without her knowing about it. Whatever it is, if my motivation is grounded in her, there's going to be times when she changes and I'm not going to be motivated and I'm not going to live virtuously at that point because I'm grounding my virtue, I'm grounding my ethics, I'm grounding my character in the world around me. However, when I'm living for the glory of God, I'm living for something that is unchanging. The glory of God is just as much a motivation on Friday morning as it is on Sunday morning. The glory of God is just as much a motivation when someone is treating you wrong and when someone is treating you right. It is unflexible. It is unchanging. It is an anchor. It is the only true motivation for godliness in this life. Everything else takes away from the glory of God. Everything else does not deliver on its promises. If we are going to live lives that are ethical, that are moral, we must be focused on the glory of God. But even then, I hesitate because we don't want to try to live moral and ethical lives as much as we want to try and glorify God. The moral and ethical life is going to be a byproduct of glorifying God. So we're not even motivated just by this is the best way to be moral and ethical because that in itself is taking away glory from God. Ground your life in the glory of God. If you want to do that, how do you accomplish it? You reflect on what he has done for you. You meditate on his word. You spend time in prayer. But we're never going to live for the glory of God if we only think about him for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. You can't do that. God must be a daily, ever-present part of your life because whether you like it or not, he is. He made you. He is there. And so we must be motivated by the glory of God. And we can thank God that one of the means he used to recapture that was the Protestant Reformation. They're focused on the fact that we have no merit in and of ourselves. I hope this study has been a benefit to you. I hope you see that these solas are every bit as relevant 500 years later as they were then. I hope that you benefited from studying history a little bit, from learning about what God has done in his church. I hope most of all that you walk out of this better equipped and better motivated to live for the glory of God. 
He has made you. He deserves all the glory. Let's pray, and when we're done praying, we're going to observe communion together. Lord, we thank you for your grace, which has been displayed to us in so many wonderful ways. So we are about to partake of communion. Lord, I pray that we would again be filled with the memory of what you have accomplished, that we would be motivated to godly living, to obedience because of you and for your glory rather than any selfish motivations which we might have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.